It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Looney. Father, we need the power of the Almighty revealed in this earth. I ask for that. I ask that you would awaken your sleeping church, that your bride would be stirred into action. Lord, that we would recognize once again the weapons of our warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, that we would not sit on our thumbs, but that we would exercise the faith and the grace that we have been given. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would animate us as the body. May the power of the Holy Spirit move and course through us And Lord Jesus, may we live lives worthy of the calling we have received. We love you and submit to you. May this message come forth with thunder and clarity. And may it bring conviction where conviction is needed. May it bring sharpness of thought and mind where that is required. Lord Jesus, may it ennoble and embolden the church of Jesus Christ. It's in the precious name we ask this. Amen. Well, I'm not sure what this camera angle is able to show you. We are completely overhauling our chapel right now, so new paint on the walls. Uh, Right now, I'm in a short sleeve, like, T-shirt, and if I had known that it was going to be freezing cold in here, I would have dressed differently, but I didn't. Uh, So that's going to mean I'm going to get very active up here, like an athletic event, uh, to warm myself up. Uh, This message is called The Honorable and the Outrageous. At one point in time, it was called the honorable and the despicable, but then I realized the word despicable uh, has become a politically charged word today, so I went with outrageous, which I think is more broad for our purposes today. But this is in our spiritual lessons from World War II series, and it's going to be very timely. If you've noticed over this past week, every time I do a uh, World War II message, it seems to correlate directly with what's going on in our world, and I think that is extremely intriguing to my soul. Every time I look down at the, at the pages of World War II history, I'm seeing similar dynamics that are unfolding. In a strange sense, we're in a place of disruption, world disruption, and it is stirring people. You're seeing leaders, some respond nobly, some respond selfishly, and so as a result, you're seeing a similar dynamic that they saw in World War II which is where we get the term the honorable and the outrageous. If we're going to divide uh, the leaders of the earth into two categories, we're going to see those that are honorable, that are self-sacrificing, that are seeking the uh, betterment, the strengthening of those around them that are protectors of the weak, and then you're going to see those that are feeding on the weak, that are doing whatever they can to grasp for more power in such a circumstance. And I'm not going to uh, try and mention names. I'm merely saying this is becoming evident before us Not just as a nation, but as a world. So the honorable and the outrageous. The rule of law. What is its basis? Now, I'm not going to answer that just yet, even though as a Christian, I have a very, very clear and concise answer to that. However, this is becoming an issue today because the rule of law is coming into question. Uh, There was a quote given by one of our previous presidents Uh, this last week, I believe it was, it says the rule of law is at risk. And I'm fascinated by the statement because I agree. I agree the rule of law is at risk, but whose rule are we talking about? And I think that's one of the key things we're dealing with here is what we could call the relativity 
of the current mindset towards law. What is law? And if this is truly the law, shouldn't we keep it? Well, that isn't the law I keep. I keep this law over here, and you're violating my law. Well, that isn't the law, though. I thought this was the law. Law has become relative, which is creating a dynamic of instability in our world. And so I'm actually going to agree and give an amen to this statement here, which is the rule of law is at risk. Right from wrong, who defines it? Good and evil, can we discern the difference? So when we go back to World War II, you're going to realize exact same issue. Good and evil. Well, the Japanese actually believe that what they're doing is good. They think it's noble. In fact, the entire nation is applauding the attack on Pearl Harbor. They think this is one of the most extraordinary feats of Japanese ingenuity and strength that has ever been marshaled. The United States is going to look at it with a completely different lens. And so that's what I want us to recognize is we are in internally a civil war, socially in, an, in a civil war, culturally in a civil war where there's a sharp divide on reality. Who's going to define it? How do we define it? These are huge issues for the day. So we're in World War II. Uh, we have em the emperor of Japan, his name is Hirohito, and uh, quite an interesting character. But I'm going to let him be a symbol of Japanese thought in 1941. Now, this isn't that it started in 1941. That just happens to be when the Japanese enter the theater of war. Up to this point, they have been in war. Uh, they have attacked China before this, but it hadn't entered into the World War theater. And so there's this mindset had been lingering since uh, probably the 20s or the 30s in Japan. It's very similar, if you parallel it with the Germans, as I will, with their mentality at the exact time. Uh, and that is, the Japanese mind in 1941, expand the Japanese empire while the major powers are otherwise occupied. In other words, while everyone else is distracted over here, I'm going to get away with something. I'm going to take territory. We're going to claim whatever we can because there is noise going on over here. Because of Darwinian uh, evolution, what you see is this notion beginning to creep into societies, and certain societies are grasping for it. They actually want it. They are happy to have the notions of Darwinian evolution because what it means is it's the survival of the fittest. And so when you can suddenly justify your actions morally by the fact that you are the fittest, and therefore you're only proving out the realities of how things work, which is Darwinian evolution, it actually clears your conscience. And that's what we're going to see the Germans do. They are going to reason from Darwinian evolution. You're going to see the Japanese doing the same thing. Hey, we're just the strongest. We're just the fittest. This is just uh, the best situation for us. We're just taking advantage of it. It's sort of like us. It's like... Well, you know what? Uh, there's a whole bunch of toilet paper on the shelves right now, and I know no one in Windsor has it, but I'm going to pack 10 of them, 10 big packets, into my shopping cart and run. In other words, that is thinking for yourself. And yes, you just happen to be the brightest and the boldest in that situation, but that doesn't make it right. However, in, this, in World War II, you're going to see that logic is justifying itself to say, no, this is right. December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. So I covered this a few weeks ago in my uh, Easter message. My resurrection morning message was on uh, the, 
I forgot what I called the sleeping giants. Or, it, was, it was a powerful message. It was during quarantine. I was actually at my house giving the message, but I was so stirred that I had to do one of my World War II series, even though we were in quarantine. And uh, so I've covered this, but I need to touch on it again. Because what we are going to have is a decided difference in world understanding of this event. The Japanese, the Germans, are actually going to celebrate this. The Italians, they're going to celebrate the fact that America just was surprised, was lied to, was attacked, was mauled. Millions, uh, well, thousands are going to die. Let me get that correct. And so many millions of dollars worth of weaponry, ships, have been sunk. This is a disaster of epic proportions for the Americans. At the same time, Great Britain is going to be shocked and horrified, but rather happy, and they would readily admit it. They were happy that America was attacked, not because people lost their lives, but because now America is going to enter the war. And so Great Britain has their own perspective on it, but they also agree with America that this is a travesty, a tragedy. This is outrageous. This is a deplorable action that must be responded to. So I have a picture on the screen of Franklin Roosevelt uh, standing before Congress uh, with uh, sort of all of the mics lined up from NBC, CBS. And uh, so you see this scene, and many of you have heard the words, at least the very beginning words of this speech. I'm actually going to read the speech to you. It's, a, it's an unusual thing for me to do. But I think what I want you to grasp is in Japan they are celebrating right now. They have, they have seen such heroism. I mean, these uh, kamikaze pilots, I mean, they, they have, uh, are esteemed the highest levels of nobility in the Japanese culture. What has taken place is brilliant, is masterful, and it is cunning. And to the Japanese, that's virtue. And so what you have in America is a very, very different response. And so I want you to listen to this speech from President Franklin Roosevelt. This is given the day after, December 8th, 1941. It's his speech to Congress. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on Hawaiian islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Listen to this list. This is quite the list. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. 
Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. But always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through, the absolute, win through to absolute victory. I believe that I interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounded determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. So you can feel the heat, but you can feel the indignation in this. To Americans, this action was wrong. This was not a declaration of war and then an attack. There's a certain gentleman's understanding in war that has existed throughout history. This is dastardly, and that's actually the word that he's going to use. Dastardly. This is evil. This is a conspired, secret attack to destroy us. In fact, the lies were leveraged to gain our confidences. Ironically, if you study the Operation Barbarossa of Germans' attack on Russia, exactly the same. Both of these countries, Germany and Japan, are going to function in a manner that agrees with one another, but is horrifying to Great Britain and to America. Who's right and who's wrong? Is, do the ends justify the means? Does it matter how we accomplish what we do? And so if it was a noble act to gain Russia, because, I mean, the communists are bad. Anyway, what's funny is I would agree. However... Is this the appropriate way to do what you do on this earth? Who's to tell? Who's to decide? Is there a definition for right and wrong? Japan defined this act as good, while the United States defined this act as evil. They can't both be correct. Do you guys feel the tension in this message? It's like, whoa, is Eric actually going to indict one of the parties and say that they were wrong? Oh, could you imagine if I did that? Yep. The definition of good and evil. Do we have a definition of good and evil? Yes. As Christians, we understand this. And I know someone could say, well, you're a Christian. That's relative to you then. God is not a relative thing. God is very real and alive. And so therefore, you can ignore God and come to your own conclusions outside of God, but that makes you wrong. Or you could submit to God, who has defined life and godliness, and you could discover what is good and right. Now, what's interesting is when you discover God, and when you understand what he says about the universe, when you recognize what he says about right and wrong, truth and lie, good and evil, you know what it does? It doesn't make you good. It shows that you are inherently wrong. 
That's what it does. And so all of us stand guilty before the realities of this God. All of us could behave like Hirohito. All of us could behave like Hitler. What we need is God to correct that. But without God, all we have is Hirohito and Hitler. Praise God that he has shown mercy and grace to this world so that he could raise up nations that would stand against evil. So when you stare at World War II, what you see is the impact of God upon this world to spare it with mercy and grace. In the midst of a holocaust, there are some that will rise up and expend and sacrifice of themselves to gain freedom. That's an amazing statement. No matter your view on war, no matter your view on aggression, there is a need in this world for righteousness to stand up. The definition of good and evil. And so on the right, I'm just going to take one slice of this. Okay, Now, I could approach this with different biblical lenses. For instance, I could deal with the issue of falsehood and lying. And I could say, okay, let's look at what the Bible says about lying to your neighbor. Okay, lying to your brother, lying to the person that says, I could whip up a whole bunch of good proverbs of how Hirohito and how uh, Nazi Germany, how they really violated the word of God in what they did. Okay, I could, because Hitler lied his entire life. That's all you see with Hitler is one thing you know about Hitler, don't believe him. Because everything he said to all those parties around him that he promised, he promised, he promised, he violated every pact he ever entered into. And Hirohito is willing to do the same. That's interesting. Well, I could evaluate it on that front. I could evaluate it on the issues of love and sacrifice and peace. I could evaluate both of them on these fronts. But if I took the the one just on the issue of theft and stealing, because what you're going to see Germany, I'm not sorry, Germany, I'm just focused on Japan right now. What you're going to see Japan do is they are going to take territory from other nations. They are literally going to invade and say, we want this. And you have to ask the question, does the Bible speak to this? Now, when we read scriptures on theft and on stealing, we, of course, are thinking about individuals. But does it only apply to individuals? Does not the behavior of God apply all throughout? When God rules his kingdom, does he not rule his kingdom a certain way as the same time he expects us to rule our individual lives the same way? See, God is the same through and through. There is no shadow of turning in him. The same is true with his truth in how it applies. His truth applies to individuals and to nations, which is why the book of Proverbs is so significant, because it is a king teaching his son how to rule nations. Most of us just take it as, okay, I'm learning this for my individual life. And yes, that's good. You can, but it also applies to nations. Exodus 20, 15. You shall not steal, Hirohito. Exodus 22, 1. If a man, if the nation of Japan shall steal an ox or she'll steal a, uh, an island, <laughs> or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep, because God is a God of justice. You see, God is a God of retribution. If there is something that is stolen, it needs to be paid back and then with interest. That is called restitution. And so as a, re- as a result, we understand this. As Christians, we instinctively see someone stealing something, we go, that's not right. But someone else could say, well, who defines right? To me, I'm just the stronger party. That's a, that's a weak party. And they had a lollipop that I wanted. And then we just go, oh, okay, I guess that's your reality. I'll let you be. If there is not a standard of justice, if the rule of law is not kept, we have chaos and anarchy. Leviticus 19.11, you shall not steal, Hirohito, nor deal falsely, 
nor lie to one another. Boy, that one covers quite a bit of basis. Deuteronomy 5.19, you shall not steal. John 10.10 is going to describe the difference between the enemy, Satan, and Jesus Christ. You're going to see a sharp divide between two different ways of thinking so that we can discern between Satan's thinking processes and God's thinking processes. The thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So look at Pearl Harbor, and you can figure out which one they are doing. Are they stealing, killing, and destroying? Or, as it says of Jesus, I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Now, if the kamikaze pilots flew over and dropped big baskets of oranges for all of the, uh, the soldiers in, America, in the American uh, uh, military, that would be more like, hey, we're giving you life, okay? This, this is different than that when you take life, when you destroy, purposely so that you could gain advantage. I understand in war that there are strategies that we'll take to undermine the strength of the opponent, and I get that. However, this is different. This is saying, peace, peace. Hey, we're at peace with you. We want to negotiate peace with you. We want to negotiate peace. We like you. We actually don't want to fight you. And then kaboom, hit them when their back is turned. That is different. That, for all of us, for most people throughout world history would say that is dastardly and that is evil. Ephesians 4.28, let him who stole steal no longer. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. You see the flip? A nation that is strong, that is whole and is healthy, labors. It doesn't steal. It doesn't need to grasp for someone else's oil fields, someone else's timber, someone else's farmland and steal their crop. It works its own land. And it develops it well and works industriously so that it can give to weaker nations. It's the exact opposite of what we see Germany and what we see Japan doing. December 8th, 1941. Okay, this is the day after Pearl Harbor. Winston Churchill's declaration of war. Winston Churchill is going to declare war on Japan. I just want you to listen to his, his declaration of war. This isn't before uh, Parliament. This is his letter handed to the ambassador of Japan in London. Delivered to the Japanese ambassador, Foreign Office, December 8th, Sir, on the evening of December 7th, His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom learned that Japanese forces, without previous warning, either in the form of a declaration of war or of an ultimatum with a conditional declaration of war, had attempted a landing on the coast of Malaya and bombed Singapore and Hong Kong. In view of these wanton acts, that's like lust-driven, craving acts, of unprovoked aggression committed in flagrant violation of international law and particularly of Article 1 of the Third Hague Convention relative to the opening of hostilities to which both Japan and the United Kingdom are parties, His Majesty's Ambassador at Tokyo has been instructed to inform the Imperial Japanese Government in the name of His Majesty's Government in the United Kingdom that a state of war exists between our two countries. Listen to how he finishes. I may put this on a separate slide just for your uh, enjoyment. I have the honor to be with high consideration, sir, your obedient servant, Winston S. Churchill. We're at war with you. Meanwhile, I just want you to know that I am going to be polite. You were not polite. I will be polite. You were not civil. I will be civil. I mean, this is like a smack in the face. Let's, I'm going to read it again just because some of you can't see it on the screen and just relish it. I have the, the honor to be with high consideration, sir, your obedient servant, Winston S. Churchill. 
Now, listen to what Winston Churchill says about this finishing touch to his, uh, to his letter years later. I love this. Some people did not like this ceremonial style, but after all, when you have to kill a man, it costs nothing to be polite. <laughs> That's classic Winston Churchill. Uh, <clears throat> there is something about what you see in the distinctions in the years of World War I. Oh, I'm sorry, World War II, that is paralleling something I'm feeling today. I am staring out at the landscape of the American culture. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to make commentary on Canada and, and all the Mexico and, and all the surrounding countries because I'm not as familiar. But I look at the landscape socially, civilly, politically in America right now. As we walk through this COVID-19 situation, I'm seeing very unique thought processes being exposed, where I'm staring back going, are they serious? I mean, are they going to bald face just say that to the nation as if that is true? Because that's, that's a lie. How could, how could you just lie to the camera when everyone knows it's a lie? But then a good portion of the country says, oh, I'm fine if, even if they lie. I would still vote for them if they lie. Wait, 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 wait. And you feel like the rule of law is evaporating. And now the rule of law is what I feel, what I like, what I want. And that person will give me what I want. It's what I agree with. I want to move in this direction. I want America to become like this. And then this other group says, well, I want America to become like this. Who's right? Who's wrong? And we have two parties in our country, typically, as we understand, Democrats and Republicans. And I, as a Christian, want to remind all of you as Christians one very critical thing. May you not be led by Democrats or Republicans. May you be led by the word of God, by the spirit of Jesus Christ, with Christ as your king. We must heed the rule of law to the degree that it stems and flows out of scripture. We are controlled by something, even if this government said, live any way you want, do whatever you want, lie as much as you want, steal as much as you want. It makes no difference to us as Christians. We are held by the word of God. We are controlled by King Jesus, not by our flesh. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And as a result, we live different in this world. The rule of law, when God is removed, then man's opinion becomes the new basis for law. Right from wrong, when God is removed, then the current political sway of society becomes the new basis for right and wrong. Good and evil. When God is removed, then man's own feelings become the new basis for good and evil. So I don't feel like that is bad, so now it's good. What if God says it's bad? And so what you see is there's so many illustrations of that. Many of us have felt that in regards to the, the gender issues that have exploded on our society. We're, we're like, well, God clarifies that there's two. There's male and female. I mean, is that confusing? And yet, yes, it is, because the definition of right and wrong, the definition of even reality itself, is being circumvented by those that are feeling their way unto their conclusions instead of allowing God to define them. And as a result, we have a soup. We have a quandary, and we're in the midst of it. Well, the Americans and the, great, and, and the British were in the same situation, the same soup, because they have some very aggressive parties in 1941 that are taking territory and are justifying it. The culture may lose God, but the church must not. 
There's two approaches to war. I'm going to give you two. One, self-justifying hedonism. I'll explain that. Don't worry. I'm not going to try and just sound intelligent here. Versus number two, self-expending honor. So let's look at self-justifying hedonism. Hedonism would be, it's a big word. It just means like the pursuit of pleasure. Like, hey, I want to be happy. What do I need to do to make, me, make myself happy? So if you have this and you're a leader and you want to create a world that just makes you happy, it could mean make you powerful. It could mean make you rich. It could mean get that person out of office and stomp them to dust. Whatever makes you happy, it becomes right. That's a dangerous leading principle. When you are led by aggression or desire or hatred, when you're led by a desire for popularity, when you're led by a desire for riches, whoa, we have corruption. That's what it's always been called. And yet, what if that corrupt leader is now the new definition of morality? And we're like, yeah, well, that's the new right. Let's all do it. We have chaos that begins to ensue. So what we had in World War II is we had two men that were led by self-justifying hedonism. So ironically, it's not just today, it was back then. Now what's funny is most people today would look at Hirohito and they would look at uh, Adolf Hitler and they'd say, ooh, bad. Even the people that are doing the same thing that they're doing would say, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe they did that. Uh -huh. But it's the same root problem. So Adolf Hitler, according to his worldview, according to his sense of right, the Jews and the communists must be exterminated. Not just argued with, not just voted out of office, exterminated, like killed, just in case you haven't studied World War II, killed, slaughtered, exterminated. It's called the Holocaust. According to his worldview, the stronger nation should gobble up the weaker. That's only appropriate and right. I mean, that's his worldview. So to him, it's right. And then to the German leadership, it became right. And then to all of the Christian, I'm going to put quotes around it, Christian nation known as Germany, they had to either subside into silence and let that be right, or they, if they stood up, they were killed. And so you have an issue where the new definition of right and wrong is on the table. According to his worldview, speaking of Adolf Hitler still, Germany was justified to kill millions of innocent people to supply for its own nation and economy. Hey guys, we're doing this for Germany. We really need, we need more timber, we need more oil, we have no oil in Germany, and we need farmland. We have to feed our growing nation. So therefore, it's justified that we exterminate all of these people. They, they figured that they needed to kill 30 million people in Russia so that they could take the territory without a problem. 30 million was their estimate of what they needed to do to get rid of so that they could populate it and grow up the way they, they need to. And that was a different message about the German uh, concept of Lebensraum, which is living space. Emperor Hirohito, according to his worldview, lying to the U.S. was a means to an end. Well, of course I have to do it because I'm, I'm Japanese and I'm trying to help the Japanese here. I'm, I'm their emperor. So therefore, if I need to lie to accomplish Japanese ends, well, that's just what I'll do because I love my country. Sounds noble, doesn't it? However, if you have to kill someone, let's imagine there's a, you know, a, a, someone in a wheelchair trying to get across the street, a car is coming towards them. And you're like, oh no, I need to rescue them. That's noble. That's great. But on the way there, you kill 10 people and trample them. But that doesn't make any sense. What's the good of... I mean, you're, you're saving someone. Oh, that's wonderful. However, you're breaking every other law on the way there. God didn't train us to just justify an ends by doing whatever it takes to get there, lying and cheating and stealing our way there, but to live righteously. How did Jesus purchase us at the cross? By living righteously. You know that he robbed straight from the devil's lair our souls. 
took us out of his clutches. But guess what? He did it in perfect righteousness. Technically, he didn't steal. He purchased us with his blood. It was the perfect, just, and satisfying offering. God did not break the law to rescue us. Oh, did I... I, I had one more statement for Hirohito. According to his worldview, killing millions of innocent people was justified by the fact that it established Japan as a greater power, Darwinian evolution. It's a thought process that concludes that, well, since we're the greater power, it just makes sense. The lion has to eat the wildebeest, and so as a result, we're just the lion. And so we just need to show ourselves as the lion, and that's just what happens. We kill the wildebeest, and we devour them. So I'm going to contrast that with Self-expending honor. I just want you to see the difference in thought process. Sacrificing everything to ensure that the weak are made strong and that the strong do not harm the weak. I'm going to read that again. Sacrificing everything to ensure that the weak are made strong and that the strong do not harm the weak. In other words, there will be strong. We understand that. But if that strength is ever misused, it needs to be policed. It needs to be guarded against. So no one would abuse power. But if they're weak, we use the power to protect the weak. That's a proper way of using power and authority. That has always been understood straight out of Scripture, but all throughout history. And anytime someone has abused it, usually they rise up in the history books as a sour illustration of humanity, right? Which is why most of us look at Hitler and go, oh, bad. And that's because he misused power. And he used his power to destroy weak instead of help weak. So... Now, I'm not trying to defend Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill and say that they're perfect, okay? And we could fl find flaw all over the place with both because people do it all the time. I esteem both of them for certain things. There's certain attributes in both of their lives that are very intriguing to me. And I'm going to bring some of those to the surface here. Franklin Roosevelt, the evil of Nazism must be stopped. He saw evil and he agreed with Churchill, this must be stopped even if we have to sacrifice greatly in our nations to do it. Most people turn a blind eye. Like, for instance, when ISIS is you know, doing all of its stuff over in the Middle East, most people on earth, to be honest, just turn a blind eye and go, you know what, I don't like it, I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to do anything about it because that would risk my life. It would risk my facilities. It would risk my resources. I don't want to do that. They're selfish. What, uh, and so look at this. All our excess, this is Franklin Roosevelt, all our excess war materials must be sent to Great Britain and Soviet Russia. Before America enters into the war and before Soviet Russia enters in, do you know that they had an agreement with Great Britain? It was called Lend-Lease. It's a very interesting thing to study that I never covered in our World War II thing. But where they were supplying all of their excess, everything they didn't need to just protect their own shores, every bit of their abundance was going to Great Britain. And in a way, Great Britain had no money. They were totally out. World War I bankrupted them, and then now they were trying to fight World War II by themselves. And so Franklin Roosevelt is going to come alongside of Churchill and say, well, let's be creative. We are, gonna, we are not entering this war because the, the people in this country do not want war. This is in the Great Depression. The last thing they wanted to do was go to war. They wanted to self-preserve. Uh, but Franklin Roosevelt is going to look across that ocean and say, if we don't do something, we're goners too. So even though my people aren't uh, in support of this, I'm going to make sure that you have everything you need, Winston Churchill, to stop this evil. You see, I, I like that. There's something about Franklin Roosevelt's decisions in this that is very intriguing to me. Winston Churchill, what did he say? Now, this is all actually before he is even uh, positioned as prime minister. This is in the beginnings. If you remember those 1930s 
days when uh, Neville Chamberlain is bargaining with Hitler. And this is what Churchill's saying. We must stand against Hitler. We must defend the sovereign statehood of Austria. They're literally, we're going to let Hitler just stroll into Austria and take it? We cannot do that. We must stop this evil. We must defend the Sudetenland. And guess what? Great Britain does nothing. We must stand with Czechoslovakia in their hour of need. We must defend the weaker. And everyone is like, oh, no, we don't want to do that. That would risk our health and our resources. We don't have enough to support ourselves, let alone. Churchill was like, spend it. What do you think it's there for? Why do you think we have strength? It's to protect the weak. And then listen to this one. He was, to the Jewish people still to this day, he's one of their greatest champions. We must help the Jewish people. Isn't that interesting? So you ask me, why do I like Winston Churchill? Well, there's a quick list. I like the fact that he was a man of honor. I'm, I'm not a big supporter of the fact that he smoked cigars and drank a little, a little tubby around the middle. It's not like I'm like, hey, could I be Winston Churchill and gain that form? No, that's not what I'm after. But there is something in his quality. If you go through the World War II series, you'll see me bring it up multiple times. There is something about this man that responds completely different to Hitler than most people even in his generation. He says, we must do something to stop this evil. Where has the honor gone? If I'm going to pick a word and say, this is what I feel like we're missing, and I feel like even the church is beginning to forsake it, when I look at the conservative pundits that come against the liberalism and the, you know, the fake news and all that, they have the same caustic, deriding, hate-filled speech that the liberals do. Okay, the fact that I lean conservative makes me vulnerable to being spiteful right now, to being vengeful, to desire my enemy's deaths. That is actually a corruption of any belief system. I don't care if you lean more left or lean more right. The moment you start going in those directions of desiring your opponent's death, you have gone off the reservation. I'll just say it that clearly. Okay, now, I am a big fan of honor. One of the things at Ellerslie that we champion is we want men to be men and women to be women. Well, how do you define that? Through scripture. And that isn't some... Uh, version of manhood and femininity that is unattractive, that's actually beautiful and very attractive. I mean, if you've ever seen a man be a man, whoo, it is an amazing thing. If you've ever seen a woman truly function as a woman, it is beautiful, elegant, lovely. It is startling to the world. Yeah, I'm a fan of that. And it's honor. It's the behavior of heaven moved inside of a human body. And as a result, this is what we are allowing to slip away in our culture. Listen to this. I'm just going to give you a, a basic list of even 20 years ago that we all held as a baseline. We could call it a rule of law, but it's basically a rule of behavior. I will never tell a lie. You know that most kids, even in the previous generation, were raised that lying was bad? I, I know. It sounds like, really? I mean, people actually think lying's bad? I hardly know anyone in all the political spectrum that when they are challenged with, like, did you actually do this? Every single one of them is going to say, no, I did not. Which makes now someone who does tell the truth look like they must be lying too. Because it just goes with the territory. No matter who is going to be asked the question, of course they didn't do it. No one is going to say, yes, I did do it. I mean, if someone did that, I would actually have a respect for them. Thank you. I don't like what you did, but I appreciate the fact that you're willing to tell the truth. You actually fear God. I will never steal. I will never cheat. I grew up this way. To me, I mean, I had, well, 
the, uh, George Washington and the cherry tree. I had the stories of uh, Abraham Lincoln who was given too much uh, change at the bank and then he came back to give it to the store. He had to walk like two hours to do it because they overpaid him by a penny. You know, one of those types of stories. I don't remember the exact amount. And I was always deeply convicted. If I ever cheated someone out of even the penny, I had to correct it because I grew up with an understanding that the integrity of soul matters. What has happened to this in our culture? I will never take advantage of a weaker party. The means by which I do something are just as important as the end that I seek to achieve. The way in which I'm going to accomplish that great thing I want to do on earth is just as important as that great thing I want to accomplish on earth. Ignoble behavior, which is the opposite of noble behavior, is never justified by noble ends. Yeah, I may be doing something great, and everyone's going to go, oh, that's so good, but if I have to lie, cheat, kill, <laughs> do these terrible things to get it, it's wrong. I'm going to say it again just in case someone in the audience missed it. That is wrong. You know, who are you to decide right from wrong? I'm not the one deciding. God has defined that as wrong. And as a result, that gives me rock to stand on so that I can reason in the midst of this flood that I'm in and recognize other rock. Okay, you're standing on the rock too. All right, you're standing on the rock. Why? Because it's the same thing beneath our feet. It's God's word. Evil is afoot. Winston Churchill is going to say over 2,000 Americans had lost their lives at Pearl Harbor. And nearly 2,000 others were wounded. The mastery of the Pacific had passed into Japanese hands and the strategic balance of the world was for the time being fundamentally changed. That last little phrase sounds familiar. When I say evil is afoot, uh-huh, yeah, that about says it for what we're going through right now. It's funny because we flash back to World War II and we're like, oh yeah, that was terrible. And then we flash to right now and it's different. It's a different version of lying. It's a different kamikaze type of attack. But it is a direct attack on the integrity of the church of Jesus Christ, on everything we believe, and either we are going to take it sitting down and just sink with the ships, or we're going to rise up like that awakening giant as the church and do something about it. And the strategic balance of the world was for the time being fundamentally changed. The Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There is such bait for outrage and indignation. We cannot follow the bait. We are Christians. Therefore, we behave as Christians even when evil is afoot. Even when the systems of this world are being fundamentally changed, we don't change. We are fixed upon rocks. So even though all the conservative pundits are beginning to have their hate speech and their mockery of the enemy, their desire to see them catch a disease and die, we don't participate in such nonsense. We behave as Christ the entire way through. Maintaining our witness. Others may lie. We will not. Others may steal. We will not. Others may cheat. We will not. Others may selfishly hoard goods and anxiously calculate if they have enough. We will not. Others may get outraged at the idiocy, I put idiocy in quotes, of those around them, but we will not participate in fleshly criticism and infuriated dialogue. Others may view the social correctness over obedience to God's word. Let me read that again. That's improperly written. Others may view social correctness as if it's greater than obedience to God's word. 
but we will remain faithful to Christ first and foremost every day and always. Right now, we have a heavy-duty move of political correctness in our world. This whole coronavirus has a political correctness to it. Have you guys noticed that? There's a way you're supposed to handle it that makes you hip. And if you don't do that, you're buck-toothed and, you know, you have issues. You're part of the problem. What's, and I've said this many times, but if you are fearless about this, then you're actually part of the problem. Fearlessness has now been construed to be a risk and a danger. And fearfulness is a virtue. What world are we living in? <laughs> the balance of the world is shifting before our very eyes. Others may seek handouts, but we seek to be the ones handing out. You guys catching this? This is, this is critical for us right now. Final slide. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that, you may see, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's let our light shine. We're Christians. We do not behave as this earth is behaving right now. We set ourselves apart and we live with love, with truth. We have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Let's shine right now in such an hour as this. This is when heroes are proven. This is the hour we look forward to as Christians. When all is shaking, when all is hanging in the balance, this is every good movie is based on a premise like this. And God looks to us and we're like, hey, me. And every hero is like an undeserved hero, right? He's like, oh, I can't do this. And that's what makes the story good. Why are you picking that guy, God? Because if he's used, everyone knows it was me that did it. Well, that's us, the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, they're small, paltry, sheep-like. And yet God wants us to rise up, shine our light, and see this world changed. Father, do this work in us. Bring about a revival in the church of Jesus Christ today. Lord, we crave that. We know that this world can only be changed through the power of prayer and through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the obedience of the saints unto what you lead us to do. So Lord, here we are. Work in and through us. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.